You're listening to The Ridge Weekly Podcast. To learn more about Chestnut Ridge Church, visit us online at theridge.church. In a world where the very concept of truth is under attack, we are called upon to know the truth and to be able to defend it. The truth can impact our relationship with God, and it can lead to true freedom. Unfortunately, many in our society no longer value the truth, and they don't know where to turn in order to find it. Listen to this talk from the series, Truth Is, as we seek to know how we can graciously stand firm in the truth as we face those in our society who look to undermine it. We all um, have to interact with people sometimes that are really hard to deal with because they think they're always right. Do you know anyone like that? They just always think that they're right. Or perhaps they have a, such a strong conviction about various things that you know you can't address anything with them because they just, they just have such a strong perspective about just everything in life. And how do you deal with someone like that? How, how do you confront someone like that? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we'd, we'd have to admit that we also are sometimes that person. I know I am sometimes. I just refuse to be persuaded. I'm so confident in, in what I believe. But oftentimes it's the other person. And the question raises is how do we confront people who equally believe that they believe the truth? When you have two people who have two different perspectives, both are confident they're right, and one of them isn't. And how do we confront this? Let me give you some examples this morning. When I was growing up, my uh, twin brother and I took piano lessons from this elderly woman who had been teaching music her whole life. She was a great teacher. She was kind of a, I don't know, a, an unhappy person, I would say, especially if we didn't do our homework, if we didn't practice on the piano, she knew. But she was not a very happy person, but she was a very good music teacher. But one day after we had been taking lessons for several weeks, she, she approached us and said, you know, you did not pay me last week for the lessons. Well, we knew we had. I don't remember if we gave cash or a check or whatever. There was no way to prove it in the moment that, that we had paid her, but we knew we had paid her. Our parents gave us the money to give to her when the lesson was done, and I knew we had done it, but she would not be persuaded, and so my parents were faced with a choice. You know, what do, I do? What do we do about this? And in this case, they decided that since she needed the money, that they would just overlook it. And so they paid her a second time. But a couple weeks later, the exact same thing happened. And she was positive she was right. You did not pay me, but we knew that we had. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, my parents didn't have a lot of money. They could not afford to pay twice every time. And so we stopped having lessons. We had to go our own way. And sometimes that's the case, even with close friends. They're people that you love, but sometimes things happen where you just can't agree and you end up separating. It's not ideal, but sometimes that happens. Let me give you some other examples. When I'm driving and I have some kind of a, a incident or something involving another driver, you know, like they cut me off or I cut them off or something happens or they're not using their turn signals and I get mad, almost every time, when something like that happens, I'm convinced I'm right and they're wrong. Now, I know that's not true of the rest of you. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just sure I'm right. And I'm sure the other person is wrong. Now, more and more, I've come to a point where I'm kind of backing away from that. In fact, if I get involved with something with one of you, more likely than not now, uh, if I feel like I was in the wrong at all, I'll wave at you in the mirror 
I hope I hope you don't misunderstand. But um, because people can't resolve these kinds of things, almost every week in the newspaper we'll read about road rage. Two people, they were both sure they were right. Both are mad. Nobody's willing to listen to the other person. Politics provides a third example. Most of us strongly believe what we believe about a variety of different issues plus the candidates. So what do you do when you have this strong position about things? And I can tell you, I personally have very strong positions about a variety of political issues and about candidates. And you do as well. But what, what happens when you can't agree? When you're looking at this other person and you're thinking, how could anyone who has a mind think the way you do? How on earth could you be so off when it comes to either this candidate or these issues? And they're thinking probably the exact same thing. And because of this, these days, a lot of families are having trouble over this issue. Like, don't talk about politics. Certainly not at the holidays. We have trouble getting along. But what do we do when we can't agree? Today, we're going to finish our series titled Truth Is. It's been a series about just a variety of areas related to the truth. The first point I made, the first um, series, first one in the series was the fact that we need to be ones who love the truth. The day is going to come, according to Paul and according to Scripture, the day is going to come when people are going to be led astray the whole world because they refuse to love the truth. And I'm watching it with my own eyes. I, I see people that are debating things that are so obvious to everybody, or at least they were five years ago or 10 years ago. 100% of us would be in agreement, but things have changed. And now there are people that can look right at you and say, this is my truth. And they wander away, wander away from the truth, truth. And it's a problem, but I, I make the argument that if we don't love the truth, we'll be led astray by lies. And then we talked about how I'm convinced anyway that the Bible is true and that Jesus Christ is the truth. And this is where we go for the truth. We talked about uh, seeing the truth within ourselves. Josh, Pastor Josh talked about this, that we're actually worse off than we think we are, but we're more loved than we think we are. And so there's just more in our lives um, that are, are true about us that aren't good. But then I love the fact that our God loves us despite seeing everything. I mean, he sees all your scars, all your warts, everything wrong about you. He knows you inside and out. He knows your thoughts. He knows everything you do, but he loves you anyway. That's remarkable. But part of the truth of that story is that we've got things in our lives that are good. And then Pastor Josh talked about how human flourishing is tied to walking in God's truth. God knows what he's doing. He's laid out the way, laid out the path for us. And it is indeed the way of life. And then last week I talked about three uh, resources that we have that will help keep us in the truth. They're very common things. I talked about how God is the God of truth, how the word of God is the truth, and how the people of God are called the pillar of truth in the Bible. The church is the foundation and pillar of the truth. That's one of our jobs in this world is to stand up for the truth when no one else does. But when people abandon the God of truth and the word of God and the people of God, when they walk away from those things, I, I see them getting deceived about a variety of different things because they've wandered away from the truth. But today I want to address the, the problem of how to disagree agreeably with people that have a different perspective. 
How can we disagree with them in a way that would be maybe the most winsome? Especially when we're confident we know the truth, but we realize they don't, or there could be, we could be again the problem. My takeaway today is this, that we can disagree with people in an agreeable way by speaking the truth in love. We can disagree with people in an agreeable way if we'll speak the truth in love. There's the greatest chance that we'll be able to come to one mind about various things. Now, as I was thinking about this subject of, of the truth and walking in the truth and dealing with people that don't believe the truth and wondering how do you confront people when we're in disagreement with one another, one book came to mind as the, the place where I would go to get most of my uh, understanding about how to deal with difficult people or people with whom I disagree, and that book is the book of Proverbs. In preparation for this, in fact, I read the entire book of Proverbs. God gave Solomon remarkable wisdom about how to deal with a variety of different situations, including people. Now, one of the things we need to understand about Proverbs is that Proverbs are not promises. That's something, something people get wrong. Proverbs are short wisdom sayings. They're things that tend to be true. There are things that are true most of the time in life, but they're not always promises. For example, in the book of Proverbs, it says if you raise up a child in the way that he should go, he won't depart from it when he's older. And yet we all know people that it seemed like they were raised in the right way, but then they departed. Well, it's because Proverbs is not a promise. It's a, it's a proverb. And it's, it tends to be true, but it's not always true. Now, I have five principles here that I'd like us to keep in mind from the book of Proverbs then about how we can deal with other people with whom we disagree. They all begin with the letter S. That's kind of a boomer thing, sorry. But the first one is this, to seek to understand before being understood. To seek to understand first before being understood. We need to get better at listening to other people before we kind of spout out off our, all of our opinions or whatever. Now, some of you perhaps years ago, I think it was in the 80s, a, um, the book Seven Habits of Highly Effective People was written, and um, Stephen Covey popularized this idea because one of his chapters was Seek to Understand Before Being Understood. It, but it's a, very much of a biblical idea to recognize that oftentimes there are things we can learn from the other person's perspective, that oftentimes there's truth involved with both perspectives. And if we could somehow arrive at some of the, the truth. And so in Proverbs 18 and verse 17, we read, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. So the first person that presents out, well, this is what I believe, this is the truth, it sure seems right until someone else comes along and begins to challenge it, and you discover, oh, there's another perspective on this. Now, over the years, I've seen this many times when I've been dealing with, especially with couples. Years ago, I used to do uh, couples counseling. I really don't do that anymore. It would actually take up all of my time. But it would be interesting to watch the different perspectives because somebody would share what their spouse did, and I'd hear it, and I'd say, well, he or she is right. I mean, I form my opinion, like, yeah, that was wrong. That, you know, what happened there? And I, I, I get that, and I realize you're right. And I could not see another way even to see the subject. And then I'd ask the other person, what would you say happened? And it's remarkable. It's like, was this the same incident? And I would learn that they have a perspective that changes everything. 
The person conveniently, the first one I talked to, conveniently left out certain details that didn't make them look good. And suddenly I realized, well, the only way to get to the truth is to talk to both of you. But oftentimes there are good points on both sides. What it takes for us, though, is to listen, to seek to understand rather than to be understood. Now, Stephen Covey, when he talked about this, he gave an example of a father who went to a friend of his for advice. And the father said to his friend, I don't understand my son because he won't listen to me. I won't, I can't understand my son because he won't listen to me. Well, the friend said to the father, so what you're saying is this, you don't understand your son because he won't listen to you? And the guy said, yes, that's what I said. And then the guy slowed down again and said it again. So you're telling me you don't understand or he doesn't understand you. He doesn't understand you because he, he won't listen to you. And the guy said, I thought that the way for you to understand is to listen. You're the one that needs to do the listening. I admit we need to listen to one another and everything. But this guy had it exactly backwards. If I want to understand my son, I need to listen to him. It's not, I don't understand him because he won't listen to me. It just was completely backwards. I know I've been guilty of this before because my wife and I will have a different perspective about something and um, I just won't want to listen. I won't want to listen. I'll, I'll cut her off in the middle. I think I already know what she's going to say, but I don't. I don't think that's happened to any of you, right? I, I, I just, they, she, begin, she begins to explain something. I jump in and I begin to argue it before she finished it. And then I discover that's not what she was going to say anyway. And if I would have just listened. In Proverbs 18, 13, we read, the one who gives an answer before he listens, it's foolishness and a disgrace for him. You go ahead and answer before you even know. And oftentimes that's what we're doing. We're arguing with one another without understanding. In Proverbs 18.2, we read, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only wants to show off his opinions. Solomon talked a lot about fools, as we'll see in a minute here. But he said a fool doesn't want to understand. You know, the goal of a fool is you need to hear me. You need to understand me. I need to tell you what I believe. That's the mark of a fool, according to Solomon. Instead, what we should do is delight in understanding. I like the wording of that. Because what if our perspective were, I just want to find joy and delight in understanding. What if that were our perspective instead of saying, I want to find joy in making sure I get my perspective out there. A fool doesn't delight in understanding, but we should. Proverbs 1.5, we read, A wise man will listen and increase his learning, and a discerning man will obtain guidance. If we're wise, we'll listen, and then we'll learn. Maybe even learn the best way to approach the situation. So listening is a big deal. The starting point is to understand the other person. Number two, stop quarrels before they begin. Oftentimes we can sense the direction that a particular disagreement is going. We see that it's going to blow up. We see it's going to turn into a quarrel. The goal for us should be to stop before it happens. In Proverbs 17 and verse 14, we read, To start a conflict is to release a flood. Stop the dispute before it breaks out. Isn't that, isn't that exactly the way it is? If you start to open the thing up, suddenly you know what's going to happen. We've all been there before, and then we have a choice. 
We see that this is going to blow up quickly. We realize this is going to open a full floodgate of things. Is that what we want to do? And oftentimes the answer is no, let's pull away from this thing. Because if neither of you is going to be teachable about it, it's not going to do any good to talk about it anyway. Another reference, Proverbs 20 and verse 3. It's honorable for a man to resolve a dispute, but any fool can get himself into a quarrel. Again, this is one of the marks of a fool. People that quarrel all the time about things. It says they're foolish. They don't see as they should. Why not again seek to understand first? And then in Proverbs 9, 8, and 9, we read, Don't rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Instruct a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will learn more. So it starts by saying, don't rebuke a mocker. A mocker is someone who scoffs at other people, derides other people, scorns other people, laughs with contempt at other people. Now, if you think a little bit, there are a lot of people in our world like this today. They deride everybody else, mock other people. So what does the proverb say? Don't rebuke a mocker. Why? Because it'll come back on you. It won't be about the issue anymore. It'll be about attacking you as a person because that's what happens when we do this. And so part of what I think Solomon is saying here is before you get into a debate with someone or an argument with someone, you need to ask yourself the question, is this a wise person or is it a fool? Because if it's a wise person, a righteous person, then you realize they will take what you're about to say, even though it's hard. But if they're a fool, they'll come after you. And I encourage you, by the way, to watch for this in the days ahead because there's a lot of this stuff going on right now. Don't rebuke a mocker. Don't, don't even get into the, the, the ring with such a person. Number three, show that you love people more than you love your viewpoint. Another way to put this is winning people is more important than winning arguments, you know, or love is what matters the most, and, and this is really the truth. And imagine for a moment if you really did love the other person as you should, the impact it would have in terms of even the discussion itself. People can tell whether you can't stand them. People can tell whether you love them or whether you love your position. And I've had to struggle with this sometimes because many of us who have been Christians for years or reading our Bibles for years, we've got strong viewpoints on things that we're not going to pedal away from. I'm not going to walk away from the idea that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm convinced it is. It is the truth. It's the Word of God, that Jesus is the way. I'm not going to back away from those things. And so I have this strong position about things, but if I'm talking with someone, do they understand that I, I love them, that that's the important thing? Or not? In Proverbs 10, verse 12, we read, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. I was meditating on this one a little bit, and it occurred to me that hatred is something that starts in the heart. And so the text says, hatred stirs up conflicts. It's something that they can't even see. But if you despise someone, if you hate someone, I think it's going to come out. But love covers all offenses. What if what they sense from us is love? Again, I think it'll create a context in which they're more likely to listen to our perspective. Proverbs 19.11, a person's insight gives him patience and his virtue is to overlook an offense. That's what we need to do many times. We need patience, and we need to overlook the way, even in the way they deal with us, the offenses that take place. So I forgive you for the way you said that or what you said there, but again, it creates a context where you can arrive at some kind of an agreement. 
because love is the predominant thing and not your viewpoint. Fourth point I want to make from Solomon from the book of Proverbs is to speak less and slowly for greater impact. So this has to do with the quantity of our words, but also maybe the quality of our words or the way. The way in which we talk will make a difference. In Proverbs 10.19 we read, When there are many words, sin is unavoidable. But the one who controls his lips is wise. So when you've got lots of words, when lots of words are being said or exchanged, sin is right there. It's likely to happen. The more we talk, the more likely we are to offend and say something that's not good. And so fewer words are better. This past uh, week, uh, Pastor Josh and I were invited by some senior pastors of some larger churches in the Pittsburgh area uh, to join for some meetings. They had heard about our church, and so we drove up to Pittsburgh. There were maybe about 10 of us that were part of this group, and I'd met one of them before, but I didn't remember him, so it was basically a group of strangers, and there was no agenda in our conversation. It was just to learn from one another, you know, to say, well, we're all kind of pastors of a little bit larger churches, so let's kind of learn what we can. And one of the subjects that they wanted to talk about was pastoral succession. What do you do when the senior pastor is going to be moving on? And because we had been talking about these kinds of things, suddenly we became um, maybe more the center of attention than the others because we, we had just done certain things. And so suddenly people were saying, what did you do here? What did you do there? And so I talked a lot. And Josh did as well, somewhat. And nothing was, nothing was said that was bad or anything like that, but I woke up at about 2 or 3 in the morning. I just woke up, and, and some of the things I said popped into my mind. Again, they weren't bad things, but I had I'd said this, or I had related a story this way, or I talked about a situation this way, and I realized, I wish I had not done that. I wish I had not said that. I wish I had not offered that. And it just kind of all hit me in the middle of the night. You know how that is sometimes. You know, you go through and you think, oh, that was a great meeting. And then later you begin to reflect on it. You think, boy, I just wish I kept my mouth shut. But this is one of the principles. In Proverbs 17, 27, and 28, the intelligent person restrains his words. And the one who keeps a cool head is a man of understanding. And then it goes on to say, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent discerning. He's, he's viewed as being discerning, or she, when he or she seals his lips. A fool is considered wise when he keeps silent. Every time I see this verse, it kind of makes me laugh just a little bit, because you have somebody that, you know, the Bible calls them a fool. In our culture today, and I don't usually use this word, but we'd call this person an idiot, or whatever here, you know. And it says if somebody's a fool or an idiot, but they don't open their mouth, people will look at them and think, oh, you must be wise. That's the effect it has. And on the flip side of this, oftentimes I've been in meetings before where, where someone in that meeting is really a, a godly person with good perspectives, but they were silent throughout. But when they spoke, when they spoke, everyone knew, you know, they don't, they're not going to say anything unless it's really significant. But if they open their mouth, suddenly the weight of their words makes a huge difference. And so we should guard our mouth. As Proverbs 21, 23 says, the one who guards his mouth and tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Just watch what you say. The image that comes to my mind here is putting a sentry or a guard right there by the mouth. So when something's about to pop out, you say, nope, I'm not going to say that. 
Now, it takes God's grace sometimes to do this because the tongue is one of the hardest things to control according to the book of James. Proverbs 15, 28, we read, the mind of the righteous person thinks before answering, but the mouth of, of the wicked blurts out evil things. Just think before answering. Now, speaking less is part of the equation. The other part of the equation has to do with the way you communicate things. Because the way you can communicate, whether you do it in an angry way or a gentle way, is going to either stir things up or it's going to pave the way for you to have a, a better relationship. And so in Proverbs 25, 15, we read, A ruler can be persuaded through patience and a gentle tongue can break a bone. I love that. A gentle tongue is so powerful that it could break a bone. And in Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, a gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fools blurts out foolishness. A gentle answer turns away anger. All of us can relate to this, where you were doing fine until the other person begins shouting or get really angry, and then what happened? Suddenly you were really angry as well, and suddenly nothing's getting done. I've been in these situations. I'm not a, a yeller type. Our family was really had the opposite problem. We would be angry but not say anything about it, and that's not good either. But we didn't have a lot of yelling in our house. But I do know that even though in my household we don't didn't yell, and I don't in my household right now, when I'm talking to someone to get really mad at me, something begins firing up in me, and suddenly we're we're both mad. We're both angry. That's the effect that it has. And Solomon said, "Pull away from that." There's power in a gentle answer. And he said here, he talked about the wisdom here of, of thinking first and how to make whatever you're going to say attractive to the other person. The question we need to ask ourselves is, okay, if I want to address the truth with this person who's having a hard time with truth, what would be the wise way to approach it so that they're most likely to receive it? That's what Solomon said. A wise person makes the truth attractive. So how do I need to word this? How do I need to say this? What tone do I need to use in order to have the best effect? And then in Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up conflict, but a man slow to anger calms strife. That's the point here. Be slow to anger. We have the ability to calm the, the situation and not uh, heat it up. Final principle from Proverbs, solicit the help of God with your, dis, uh, with your dispute. We, we don't have to fight every battle. It's not our job to always prove the other person wrong. I don't know why we feel the need to do that, or we have to be the last one to get the word in or whatever. I just want to prove that you're wrong and I'm right. Something about us is kind of, kind of like that, but what if we let God fight the battle for us? In Proverbs 16, 7, we read, When a man's ways, are, ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And I'll just focus on your relationship with Christ. And let the Lord work behind the scenes to bring about peace with that person who maybe is your enemy. Lord, I pray that you, you bring about peace. Or in Proverbs 25, 21, and 22, If your enemy is hungry, Solomon wrote, Give him food to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, just at the outset, this doesn't look like it applies to the point. What is this about feeding your enemy if he's hungry or giving water to drink or whatever? Um, how does that relate to this idea of soliciting the help of God? Well, the Apostle Paul used this proverb in the book of Romans. 
And here's what he said in Romans 12, 18, if possible on your part, live at peace with everyone. That's the point. As, as much as it's up to you, live at peace with everyone. And then he said, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So you, you, you focus on being good. You focus on loving the other person. You focus on serving the other person. And you let God deal with revenge and getting back at the other person. You let God deal with that. It says if we handle this the right way, it'll be like um, putting heaping fiery coals on their head. Now, commentators debate what that means. Is that a positive thing or a negative thing? I believe that most commentators, and I also am of the perspective, that it's showing or it's making the point that God will deal with that person in terms of uh, judgment, actually. This, this phrase about coals on the head is used elsewhere in Scripture about judgment from God. And what it's saying is, you focus on loving the person, you focus on being kind to the person, you focus on serving the person. If they continue to treat you poorly, they're heaping up judgment to come. I think that's the sense of this thing. Dr. Wearsby put it this way, the principle stated here is that the believer has turned himself over to the Lord, and therefore the Lord must take care of him and help fight his battles. Now, whenever I think of this point, I think of a course I took several years ago, a statistics course at the university, and I was wrong by the teacher. Uh, it was a class where there were only two tests, and the entire grade was based on those two tests, the midterm and a final. And because that was the case, because there was so much weight on the two tests, the teacher did a study session and invited us, all the students to come, and most of us did because there was so much weight on that one midterm that was coming up in a day or two. And at that session, the stats teacher gave an example or some examples of different statistic problems that um, would answer certain issues or questions based on, on your calculations. And one of them, the teacher said, if you get this particular kind of problem and you begin to work it, and early on, like within a minute or two, you get a zero value in your calculations or a negative value, then you know the answer to the problem. This statistical is statistically um, impossible. It's not gonna happen. And you'll know that. And, and then he said, you'll save a lot of time because you won't have to work the whole problem because you'll know if you get a zero value or negative at this point. Well, I knew there'd be one of those on the test. And sure enough, the second problem, there were only three problems on the test. The second problem was one of those and I began to work it. Within a minute or two, I got a zero value. And so I wrote a note. I said, because I got a zero value at this point in the equation, Therefore, I know this is not a viable statistical answer. It, it, it won't work. And so I made that very, very clear. I get the test back, minus 33 points. He gave me a zero on that. Does that sound fair to any of you? Is that fair? So I went up to the teacher afterwards. I said, hey, listen, I went to your study session, and, and, and you gave an example of this exact kind of problem. And, and, and you said if you get a zero value in this and that, and... And, and so that's what I did. And so I asked the teacher, do you want me to leave the test with you so you can change the grade? And he said, no. And I said, no what? He said, don't leave it with me. Oh, so you're going to remember who I am? No, I'm not giving you credit, he said. I said, what do you mean? He said, I wanted, you to, I wanted to make sure you could still work the whole problem. And I said, you specifically said we'd save a lot of time. I did. 
I was like the first one done. That never happens. <laughs> yes, I saved a lot of time. You said that. I was looking for it. I found it. He wouldn't change it. Months passed, probably six weeks, whenever the final was after that, I'm sitting there and taking the final. Every day after that, I asked God, I said, fight for me. I give this to you. You fight between us, Lord. You judge between us who's right and who's not. Change his heart, change his mind. I'm going to leave it in your hands. And that's what I did for the next several weeks. I'm taking the final. The teacher comes up to me and whispers in my ear. He said, um, I've been thinking about it, and I want you to, I'm going to give you credit for that problem. So write on the top of your test plus 33, and then put midterm, and I'll remember what it is. I just couldn't believe it. And then I got back the final. I got 100 on it, not because I earned 100. It, he didn't even read the final. I don't think he even read the thing. He just saw the 33 and thought, boy, I wronged that guy. And he just gave me an A in the course. That was kind of the end of the matter. Now, to be honest, if he had not done that, I would have gone to an ombudsman at the university. Sometimes there are other steps that we can take. But God is able to help us. So let me summarize. We can disagree with people in an agreeable way. We do it by, I think, speaking the truth in love. All these can help. I encourage you just to look at maybe these five and ask which one most applies to me. One is to seek to understand before being understood. Some of us just, just want so much for them to understand us. No, listen. Two, stop quarrels before they begin. Three, show that you love people more than uh, their viewpoint or your viewpoint. Four is to speak less and softly for a greater impact. And then finally, solicit the help of God with the dispute. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you've given us so much insight through your word and especially this wonderful book of Proverbs. Help us, O Lord, as we're facing situations in the days ahead uh, to be able to apply these things to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.